Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Dang it, I brought up my phone accidentally as well. All right. This is going to be okay. Gosh, there's a lot of pressure this time of year. Um, I feel like there's pressure for, like, the sermon before Christmas. You know, this is the Sunday before Christmas, so there's pressure for me not to start off by um, the way I've started off so far. Um, there's pressure, I mean, just like, I feel like for a lot of you, you're hitting, like, a lot of firsts right now in your families. You know, a lot of you, this is baby's first Christmas. Uh, that's the way it is in my family right now. It's baby's first Christmas, um, or it's baby is finally old enough to understand the gifts that he or she is receiving for Christmas, and so you better deliver. You know, you can't just give a box or wrapping paper like they're actually going to care what is inside the box. For others of you, this is your first Christmas. Dating somebody, this is your first Christmas. Not dating somebody, this is your first Christmas. Married, I just feel like there's this huge kind of, no matter what you might feel about this holiday, there's kind of this huge amount of pressure uh, not to blow it. Like, not to miss the opportunity, not to make the most of this time. And, uh, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if you resonate with this at all, but I think for me, at least, um, when I think about all of it, I, I kind of feel like Christmas can only be good for me. Christmas can only be at its best uh, when I am at my best, when my family is at my best, when everything kind of goes according to plan, when our lives reflect almost this Norman Rockwell-esque scene where we're all wearing matching sweaters and holding hands, and there's this uh, picturesque turkey on the table. Um, the, the problem with that is I feel like this is the least likely season in any of our lives for life to actually go uh, in that way. I just feel like life is crazy right now. I mean, I feel like yesterday was a really good representation of this. It was, you know, the Saturday before Christmas. So for my family, we were like, we got to make the most of this. You know, we got we to capitalize on this. This is Hannah's first Christmas. And we had kind of all these ideas and visions for what the day would look like. And, you know, it started with um, us having some friends over and all their kids, and we were going to kind of embed them into this annual holiday tradition we have of watching the greatest Christmas movie that has ever been created, Home Alone. And in our, in our minds, as we were, you know, kind of planning this, I think we thought, like, this is going to be great. Like, we're going to make food, and there'll be Christmas music on, and then we'll go to the basement, and everybody will sit there quietly and obediently and marvel at how great this film is. And, like, for any of you who are, are parents of small kids, like, how do you think that went? Like, it didn't go like that whatsoever. It was crazy. It was complete chaos, which was totally fine. I mean, like, that's not the kid's fault. It's, it's our fault for expecting it to go any other way. And then it goes from there, and then it's like, okay, well, you know, we got to make the night matter. We had so many conversations leading up to the Saturday before Christmas about we got to do something really meaningful and special for Hannah. And so we were like, okay, we're going to take her to the lights of the Denver Zoo, or we're going to take her to see Santa Claus uh, down at Cherry Creek Mall. Let's do both. Let's at least try to do both, um, which all of you parents of young kids are like, that is dumb. Like, you know that right now. You know how exactly this ends. And so we hop in the car, and we pack her up, and Hannah's in her little down jacket. She's stuffed into the car seat, and she's like a marshmallow who's just, like, strapped in way too tight, and she's not very happy about it. And we get on York Street, and somehow the traffic to the zoo is backed up all the way down into York Street. I've never seen it be that way. And so we're like, okay, we're not going there. We're going down to the mall. We're going to have her see Santa. The traffic from Cherry Creek Mall is backed up all the way down to Colfax. All right, forget it. We're just going to Chick-fil-A. We're going to get dinner, and then we're going to go back home, um, which in Hannah's eyes, I think, was really meaningful. It was meaningful for us, at least. And it's easy to like, get to the end of that entire kind of series of events and be like, it's over. We blew it. The chance for a meaningful Christmas is, has been spent. 
I don't know if you feel that way. I don't know if you feel like for Christmas to kind of be at its best for you, you and your family and your circumstances have to be at their best. I feel like we put that pressure on ourselves a lot. Um, and I think we can really be easily defeated by it. I think that, you know, I, I think that, I don't know. I, my guess is for many of you who are married, like you're fighting right now more than any other time out of the year. Like your kids, for those of you with kids, like your kids are crazier right now because they are so more pumped, full of sugar than any other time of the year. Like it is chaos in your home. For those of you um, who aren't dating somebody right now, this might even be a low point in terms of how you feel about your relationship status right now because you're being constantly reminded by commercials, by movies, by lifetime specials, by your parents. Like you're alone. You're all alone. How are you going to cope with being alone for the holidays? It's like, thanks for the reminder. I appreciate it. Like I didn't know uh, what my relationship status was. Thanks, mom. Um, I think it's easy for us to feel like Christmas will only be good for us if kind of life and its circumstances are good. And when kind of the natural flow of life around this time of year leads to life being very chaotic and bad and frustrating and hard, I mean, that can feel tremendously, tremendously defeating. Now, here's kind of why I say all of this, is because what we're talking about tonight is the heart, the theological heart of the Christian faith, which is the incarnation, the belief that God, uh, he stepped out of heaven into history as a man. And, and at Christmas, he stepped out of heaven in history as a baby. He was born. Uh, he could be cradled. He could be thrown up in the air. He could be nursed. His diapers could be changed. That God uh, didn't just kind of stand off far and give a bunch of principles that kind of help li- life go from being chaotic to peaceful. He actually entered into the chaos of life itself. Um, that's kind of what the incarnation is, and it's what we're going to talk about. And here's what's so beautiful about this, is that when you really understand the nature of the incarnation and what it means for our lives very practically, uh, what it means is actually that understanding of Christmas that I think many of us intuitively carry is actually flipped on its head. Um, That Christmas is most beautiful for us. Christmas is most beautiful for you, and it's most beautiful for me, uh, really when life is not at its best, but when it's actually at its worst. And I, I know that's kind of hard to kind of imagine, well, how could that be true? You know, like when my kids are melting down or when we're having another fight over blowing the budget on gifts, um, like how could Christmas be most beautiful then? Um, but here's what we're going to do to kind of help you maybe wrap your mind around this. It's pretty simple what we're going to do tonight. What we're going to do is we're actually going to give you the example of three different people. We're going we're to meet three different people uh, who kind of show this principle to be tremendously true for their lives and consequently for our lives as well. And and the end goal in this is not just like, okay, well, you can endure Christmas. I mean, the end goal is to understand the beauty and the supremacy of Christ, the the way that he breaks into our lives and and how, like, he can be so unbelievably powerful and beautiful, uh, even when life is at its hardest or at its worst. Now, um, the two of the people that we're going to meet uh, are from the story that we just read. The first person we're going to meet is a woman named Maria von Wiedemeyer. Maria von Wiedemeyer, which I know some of you are out of town, and, or this is your first time here, and you're like, how did you just randomly pick this woman out of a hat? Um, we didn't. What we've been talking about through the entirety of this series is about a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a theologian, scholar, author. Uh, who, he was German. He lived in Germany uh, during the reign of uh, Adolf Hitler and his Nazi regime. And Bonhoeffer was actually thrown into prison uh, for opposing Hitler very vocally and uh, publicly. 
Now, what we said was that Bonhoeffer, we have access to his letters. He actually wrote, as he was in prison, uh, he wrote about uh, Advent and Christmas, really as much as he wrote about anything else, which is really powerful because it shows like, how Christmas can actually be tangible when life is at its worst. It shows us how Christmas isn't just for warm fuzzies. It actually has a backbone and some truth that can impact our lives. Now, uh, I feel like a lady who's tremendously important in this story that we haven't given much love to is this woman named Maria, Maria von Wiedemeyer. Um, here, here's what's really interesting. Circumstantially, I don't know if anybody in the 1940s had it worse than Maria von Wiedemeyer. Uh, in 1943, January of 1943, her and Bonhoeffer, Dietrich, they, uh, they got engaged. Now, already in that moment, circumstantially, things are not going to be very good. Who has ever planned a wedding before? Has anybody ever planned a wedding? Circumstantially, does that make your life better or does it make it worse? Now, getting married is a great thing. I'm talking about actually planning the wedding leading up. So, like, already, circumstantially, it's like, this is not going to be right. Okay, so she gets engaged, January of 1943, April of 1943. Her fiancé, Dietrich, is thrown into prison for opposing Hitler uh, in his ideals. So not only is she planning a wedding, but she's trying to plan a wedding. You know, it's hard enough to plan a wedding, like, when your, your, your fiancé can be there to, like, oh, I like these flowers versus these flowers. Like, it's another thing when your, your fiancé is locked in a Nazi prison. Uh, so already, that's not very good. Not only that, uh, not only is she planning a wedding, but circumstantially, what is also very difficult for her is that she is uh, experiencing the ultimate long-distance relationship. Has anyone ever been in a long-distance relationship before? Do those make your lives easier or better? Wait, that was a terrible question. <laughs> I was like, why is nobody responding? That's my fault. Okay, my bad. Does it make it easier or worse? Better or worse? Worse, yes, yes, it does. It makes it far worse. You got all the communication breakdowns and, you know, like the Wi-Fi signal flickers in and out. And so you're trying to Skype and you're coming in and out. You got one bar on the cell phone service and you start yelling at one another, even though it's like, it's not your fault. It's like AT&T's fault. It's Skype's fault. But you start getting angry at one another and you got the time change and you're like, are you two hours ahead? Are you two hours behind? Like a long distance relationship is terrible. Well, this poor woman, Maria von Wiedemeyer, I mean, as soon as her fiance is arrested, she flees from Germany to England for her safety. And so she's kind of experiencing the ultimate long distance relationship. She can't text. I mean, this is pre like being able to give a phone call or anything like that. I mean, she's got to send letters. She's got to send letters to her beau in a Nazi prison. And all of this is happening. Not only is this circumstantially difficult, but she's all this is happening around kind of not only is she engaged, not only is she experiencing this long distance relationship, but all of this is also in the midst of kind of wondering, like, is the man that I hope to be with for the rest of my life, is he going to be executed or is he going to be freed? Like, that would cause a lot of sleepless nights as well. Now, here's what's really interesting about uh, this lady is we actually know, uh, we don't have to kind of speculate what she thought. Uh, we actually have access to her letters. Back in 2001, uh, her letters were actually published. You can go on Amazon and see them now. And we actually see the letter that she wrote to Dietrich in prison as he was preparing to spend his first Christmas away from her. And here's what's really interesting. Can we bring up this quote and see what it is that she wrote? Here's what she wrote. December 10, 1943. She says, And now Christmas is coming, and you won't be there. We shall be apart, yes, but very close together. My thoughts will come to you and accompany you. We shall sing peace on earth and pray together, but we shall sing glory be to God on high even louder. That is what I pray for you and for all of us, that the Savior may throw open the gates of heaven for us at darkest night on Christmas Eve so that we can be joyful in spite of everything. Now, 
What's really interesting to me is what she says at the very end there. I mean, again, what, what's, what are we saying? We're saying that Christmas can be beautiful, not just when things are circumstantially good, but actually when things are circumstantially at their worst. I mean, this woman is in history kind of experiencing the worst of the worst. And what she says is there's some aspect, there's some truth of Christmas that makes it possible for her and for them and for their family to be joyful in spite of everything. Now, how is that true? Like, how is that possible? How, I mean... What does she understand about Christmas that makes it possible to be joyful in spite of circumstances like those? It's absolutely peculiar. Now, I think that's the first person we meet is this, is this wonderful lady, Maria. That the next two people we meet are actually in the story that we just read. And so if you want to turn back there, that's what I want to jump into. We're going to meet a man named Simeon, and then we're going to meet a woman named Anna. And I think what you're going to see is circumstantially, their lives really aren't much better uh, than this lady that we just met, um, and they're struggling as well. And and I think what we're going to see is really a glimpse, not just into that this principle is true, but also how the incarnation be so good for us as well. So we've met Maria. That's person number one. Now, person number two, let's meet a man named Simeon. What we see, let let me just kind of lead you up to this, verses 22 through 24, uh, what we see is that Jesus has been born, this is 40 days after Jesus has been born. He's taken by his parents to the temple to be dedicated. What would happen is kind of in accordance with the law, parents would take their children there and they would make sacrifice, acknowledging their sin, acknowledging their need for a savior, um, which is really ironic because Jesus is going to be that savior, but he's also perfectly fulfilling the Old Testament law. Uh, we even see, if you look down at verse 24, it says they're making sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Uh, which is interesting that Luke, the author of this, includes that detail. Um, not only do you see uh, kind of where, for those of you who always wondered, where do two turtle doves come from in the 12 days of Christmas song? There you go. Merry Christmas. You learned something new tonight, maybe. Um, but also, here's why Luke includes this detail, is it helps us understand uh, that Jesus was born to a, a fairly impoverished family. If you kind of go back and read the Old Testament law, the way this would happen is you would sacrifice two animals. Usually one was something like a lamb that, that cost a lot of money, and then one was something smaller like a turtle dove. What we see is there's a provision for the poor uh, for there to be two uh, turtle doves or two young pigeons sacrificed which the pigeons part really gets me. I mean, like, I just feel like God's just like, put anything on there. Like, just acknowledge that you're sinful and need a savior. Like, a pigeon is a rat with wings, right? And so, like, whatever it is, like, just get it on there. And if that's all you can afford, okay, let's just get it over with. Uh, And so they go and do that. And they go into the temple to make the sacrifice. And as they go into the temple, they meet a man named Simeon. Now, circumstantially for Simeon, things were bad for Simeon because he's old and he appears that he is about to die circumstantially, I think we can all, I don't really have to explain that any further. That's not a good place to be. That is a bad place to be. And and here's what happens. Look at verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem uh, whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now, when it says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel, uh, if you remember, the first week that we studied this passage, we were in Genesis 3, and we said how the entirety of the Old Testament is a longing for a man to come and to redeem things, to redeem and to restore the world back to the way that it's meant to be. That hope is ultimately not in the right political philosophy. It's ultimately not in the right economic strategy. Hope rests in a man. And over and over again in the Old Testament, there's this longing for a man to come 
to redeem and restore things back to the way they were meant to be. What Simeon is, is a man who shows that he believes by faith the Old Testament promise that this Savior is going to come, and he's just going to the temple over and over and over again, longing for this man to come. God, in his mercy, tells him that he'll see him. Look at verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit. Notice Luke just using that term over and over again. God's Spirit, his presence is in this man's life. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, verse 28, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and look at what he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. That's what we're going to focus on. I'm going to come back to it, though. According to your word, verse 30, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Isn't that powerful? Like, salvation is ultimately a man. That's what Simeon's saying. Like, I'm seeing this little boy, and I have seen tangibly your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people. So he's not just God's salvation, but he's God's salvation for all peoples. And he elaborates on this. Look at what he says next in verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. So that's everybody who's not Jewish. And for glory to your people Israel. That's for the people who are Jewish. He's saying that this salvation, it's, it's not everybody is going to be saved. He's not a universalist. He's saying that this salvation, that Jesus Christ, he is going to die for all, for Jew and for Gentile. And he's already proclaiming this truth into this family as soon as he holds this baby in his arms. Now, the part of this I want to focus on, though, because, again, we're seeing that this man has been waiting a long time. He's at the end of his life, and he's... Uh, kind of awaiting his death. This is circumstantially not a great place to be. Verse 29, he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. I think, really, I mean, what he's saying is something that you might have heard thrown around before. Like, now I can die in peace. Anybody ever heard somebody say that before? There's books written about that. In fact, um, in 1994, I think it was, I'm not a huge hockey fan, but I, I saw this this week. I think it was 1994, the New York Rangers won the NHL Stanley Cup and uh, there's this famous picture of uh, this dad and his son holding up a giant sign that they had made at home, and it says, now I can die in peace. Um, and, and you see that kind of phrase thrown around all the time. Like, you see it around sporting events. You see, and maybe you've used it before. I think a lot of times, you know, in our back of our minds, we have, like, bucket list items where if I could just go do this or see this or experience this or buy this, uh, now I can die in peace. It, it, it's a phrase that we throw around fairly regularly. Probably even some of you in this room um, moved to Colorado because there was kind of the hope maybe for an experience or a lifestyle that would make it possible like, oh, I can do these things. I can climb these things. I can experience these things. And now I'll be able to die in peace. Now, here's what's really interesting. Because even though we throw that expression around and even though, you know, it is it's thrown out every single time any sporting, uh, any team wins uh, a professional championship, it's really interesting that most people don't die in peace. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard to statistically analyze that. Um, but it's interesting. I, was coming, I came across an article this week by a woman. She wrote a book called Top Regrets of the Dying. And her job, she worked in healthcare, and her job was essentially to help people die, to help people at the end of their lives die and to die as easily and peaceably as possible. She said her observation is that while most people do desire to die in peace, uh, it was pretty rare for her to see a peaceful death. 
But on the whole, people were tremendously regretful as they were breathing their final breaths. And I think that was kind of startling. I mean, she just, I mean, the entire book is about this, where she writes all about people's regrets over the way they spent their money or the way they spent their time or the, way, the words that they used or the opportunities they passed up. That she just said over and over and over again, it, it was a little bit frightening to her that she would see these people come to the end of their lives and you think, like, that's when I should kind of pass on and, like, I'm ready to go on to a better place. And she said, I, I very rarely saw that. She, I mean, what she would say is, I very rarely saw Sim, somebody like Simeon who's coming to the end of his life and saying, Lord, now I can die in peace. So I think the question is like, well, how can Simeon say that? Like what makes Simeon so unique that circumstantially, just a few days after the first Christmas, I mean, even though his life is at the worst, like he's about to die, he's able to say, Lord, I can die in peace. Well, it's interesting because he, he, he continues. He actually kind of steals the show in this scene. He speaks the longest. Verse 33, you see, and his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. So, I mean, you can imagine this. If you walked into the temple and you had a little baby and a grown man who was very, very old just pulled him out of your arms and just started saying that this is going to be the Savior of the world. That would be a little bit startling. It would be a little bit, you know, marvel-inducing. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them, he speaks again, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. For a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now, this passage, what he says here in verses 34 and 35, things are just falling all over the place. I'm trying to, like, preach this to myself. I drop my notes. It's just Christmas is at its best when things are at their worst. But it's amazing. Like, if you look at this, verses 34 and 35, on one hand, like, what he says here is unbelievably complex, but the point is very simple. You know what Simeon is preaching? Like, Simeon is preaching the gospel. He's holding this little baby in his arms, and he's saying, this child was born to grow up to a man, to be a man and to die. And, like, you're seeing this right here where he's saying, like, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And he says, if you look at verse 35, he says to Mary, his mother, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. He's looking at this little child, and he's saying, you're going to be a savior. But what have we said? We've said throughout this entire series that part of being a savior is not Jesus just growing up and being a good moral example. It's not him just growing up and kind of bestowing upon us principles to help us understand how to live a more fulfilled lifestyle or finally actualizing our potential. No, that Jesus was born to die. He was born to grow up and live about 30 years and to live a perfect, sinless life and then to die in our place for our salvation. That's why he can look at a mother and say, your soul is going to be pierced. I mean, think about this, moms of young children. Imagine if you were told this as you held your baby in your arms. Your soul would already be pierced. Your spirit would already be crushed, anticipating, like, could this possibly be true for my child? And we know the rest of the story. We know that Jesus fulfills this. But here's what's really powerful about this, is that for Simeon, there's some understanding about the essence and the nature of the gospel that the death and the subsequent resurrection of Jesus has such applicable truth that God, he breaks into human history. He incarnates in such a way 
that peace and mercy and grace trickles into the most practical area of life, for example, being able to die in peace. Now, how is this possible? When you think about the implications of the gospel, what it is that Simeon is proclaiming here, well, it starts to make a whole lot of sense. I mean, because as you're coming to die, I mean, what are, what are a couple of things you really need? I mean, it's hard for us to know. I think, especially for many of us in this room, like, we're very young, and we kind of think we're invincible, and we think, oh, that'll never happen to me if I just crossfit enough and eat paleo long enough. Like, I'll live forever. Like, no, you might live, like, 10 year, more years longer than, than somebody else who ate poorly. But, I mean, in the grand sw- sweep of history, like, you and I, no matter how long we live, are nothing more than blips on the radar. How is it that we come to the end of our lives and like Simeon be able to say, Lord, now I can die in peace? Well, here's what's beautiful about the truth of the gospel is, one, like, as we come to breathe our final breaths, what, what is it that we surely will long for? I mean, on one hand, it's forgiveness. I mean, it's interesting that this woman that we just referenced, that she would write a book about how people are deeply regretful at the end of their lives. Isn't that fascinating? Because I think, what do we say? I mean, like, we live lives where we say, no regrets, right? I'm not going to have any regrets when I come to die. Well, it seems like that can't be the case, surely off of pure willpower. Like, I'm not going to have any regrets because I don't have any regrets. And it's surely not going to be the case because you performed perfectly, right? I mean, already, like, I mean, I still have a significant portion of my life ahead of me, I think, I mean, the reality is, is I look back on my life and I've got more of my life ahead of me than behind me and I'm already deeply regretful if I'm just kind of honest and transparent about much of my life. I mean, there's been things I've said that have been terrible. There's been money I've mismanaged. There's been ways that I've acted in my marriage and already as a dad, like, where it's like I deeply, deeply regret that if I'm being transparent and if I'm being honest. Surely Simeon was no different. Surely you're no different as well. I think we feel these regrets when we a lot of times come to Christmas and, and drop the ball. How is that possible? Well, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, he is our forgiveness. And the good news of this baby growing up to be a man and to die is that he is dying for the things that we've done wrong. He is dying for our sins, and he has taken upon himself the subsequent regrets that you and I might carry. Not only that, not only is there a... a, a the hope of forgiveness, but the hope that there's something more as well. I mean, a lot of times when people die, we say, like, I hope that they're in a better place. I know that they're in a better place. I think when we think critically about the truth claims that we're making in those moments, I mean, the reality is, is that how can we know whether that's the case or not? Again, that's an area of life that is so far beyond our control. I mean, we can't just will for people to be in a better place. We need a far more tangible hope when we come to breathe our final breath, something that all of us in this room will experience together. How can a man like this come to breathe his final breath and say, Lord, now I can die in peace? Well, here's the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that Jesus Christ doesn't just die, but he gets back up. He doesn't just die, he doesn't just get in the grave, he gets back up again. And what makes Christianity so unique and really unlike other faith systems is that Jesus, when he resurrects, he's not just performing a magic trick. He's not just like, ta-da! Like, no, he is giving a clear, tangible, historical, investigatable hope of what happens to those who are his after we die. 
It's amazing. We long for this, don't we? We long. If, if you've been with somebody who dies or if somebody close to you has died, which probably all of us have experienced in some way, I mean, there's this deep internal longing that they would just be like, just kidding, you know, and like, I'm fine, and I'm back to the way that I used to be. And it's, I mean, our hearts in some way deeply, deeply long for that. And Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, the fact that he doesn't just die, but he gets back up again, this hope of the gospel provides for us a, a an assurance that is not a mere fantasy. That longing is not just something we've uh, invented in our minds because we want it to be true. When Jesus Christ resurrected from the grave, he was not just doing what he wanted to do to kind of show off. No, he was showing a tangible glimpse into what happens to those who are his after we die as well. That death is transformed into nothing more than a long winter nap. And already, here's this man, Simeon, who's met the Savior of the world, and he said, now I can die in peace. So we've met Simeon, and we've met this woman, Maria, and we're going to meet another woman. Um, I'm going to be quick, because I um, am trying to be respectful of my time limit here. And um, we're going to meet a woman named Anna. And here's what's really interesting about Anna. I'll just cut right to the chase. She's old, but more importantly, circumstantial. You want to know something about Anna? She's single. She's single, and she is, I mean, being single around the holidays can be really, really hard. I read an article this week that was literally titled, Coping with Your Singleness at the Holidays. It made it seem like you had been diagnosed with, like, inoperable brain cancer or something like that. Like, it's a relationship status that you've opted into. It's not like a condition that is eating away inside of you and won't allow you to walk. But that's the way it is, right? Like for, for many of you, um, I think especially for those of you who are ladies, for the men, it's like, yeah, another year being single. Way to go. High five. But for you ladies, like you're probably getting pressure. You know, like I really love a granddaughter. When, you know, when are they going to come? It's like, thanks, mom. Like I would prefer if you wouldn't bring that up as we're carving the turkey. That does not make my Christmas enjoyable. And Anna, this woman Anna, just her inclusion in this story is really, really beautiful because she's old and she is single and she is held out um, not as some sort of embarrassing, like avoid at all costs. Like she is held out as a model example of faithfulness uh, in the wake of the first Christmas. So let me just hit this really, really quickly. So verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. Notice the historical detail that Luke is giving here. It's amazing that he, he kind of is daring you to verify, did this really happen or not? He's giving all these details. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. So basically, it looks like she was married for seven years. And then as a widow, so her husband died after they were married for seven years until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let me just get right to the point here. I love how Anna is held out as an example. I think too often in culture, too often even inside the church, um, singles, and particularly single ladies, are told that you are somehow incomplete or inadequate because of your relationship status. And when you read the Bible, here's this woman, Anna. We're not sure exactly how old she is. Some people believe she's 84. Some people, the, the language is a little bit complex. Some people think she might be even older than that. She willingly uses her singleness for the sake of a great purpose of searching and worshiping the Savior. 
Day after day, she goes to the temple and longs to see this man, Jesus Christ, in the flesh. And we've talked about this. We just preached through the entire book of Ruth. We talked about how being a widow is usually a relationship status that you are trying to get out of at all costs. Because in this culture, men are the providers, men are the protectors, and singleness is to be avoided at all costs. And somehow we see a glimpse of this woman who fully embraced it and used it to worship and follow Jesus. Here's what I would just say to you. Not only if you're single here at Christmas, and that's really, really hard for you, um, whether you might feel incomplete in any way. Or maybe not if you feel incomplete, but people want to make you feel incomplete. Oh, you don't have kids, or oh, you're, whatever it might be. I think many of us are reminded by, by family, by friends, by Facebook, by articles, uh, you are not full. You are not complete. You are not where you need to be to really experience the fullness of this Christmas season. And I would point you not just to Anna being held out as a shining example, but I would point you to her hope in the gospel that she's fully embracing as she cradles this little baby boy. To say in the gospel, God is not just, again, giving principles. He is offering us himself. And what it means then is that you and I are not longing in our lives. If you're single, you're you're not fully complete. You're not fully whole when you finally meet the perfect guy. No, God's love is enough. The incarnation means that God is fully for us and desires relationship with us. And he is not some cold, distant deity giving nothing more than platitudes for how to live a better life. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants to love you. And even if you meet the perfect guy, which he doesn't exist, and the reality is, is his love will never compare to the perfect love of the Savior that is embraced and, and expressed through Christ's death and his resurrection as well. That's enough for tonight. Here's what I really want to pray for you. Why did you meet these three people? Maria, Simeon, Anna. And I really hope, I, I know that even this week is going to be crazy for some of you. I want you to really believe that you do not have to be perfect for God to bless this season in your life, and in your kids' lives, and in your family's lives, or in your own life as well. You don't. The beauty of the gospel is that God's blessing is not contingent upon your perfection, but his perfection. And here's the really great news. The story of the gospel is that Jesus Christ has been perfect. The work has been done. He cried on the cross. It is finished. He resurrected from the grave three days later, defeating Satan, sin, death, and hell. And because of that, we can rest, even in the most tangible, kind of silly, trivial areas of life, like fighting more around Christmas, like stressing about the budget, like not getting to the the lights at the zoo, (laughs) and understand that God can still move and work in your life and in your family's life as well. It's all about Jesus. And I pray that you really would worship him and know him and embrace him uh, in the midst of this season. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you. Um, we thank you so much that you've been perfect on our behalf. We thank you that you hold out shining examples like a woman 
like Anna that I think in our culture would just be totally discarded. An old widow who would be portrayed as a woman who has nothing to offer, but in the truth of the gospel, here's this woman who's used mightily. A man like Simeon, who probably many people mocked for throwing his life away, searching for the Redeemer, giving his life to the Redeemer. And your promises were true. We thank you even for historical examples. Uh, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Maria von Wiedemeyer, that we <clears throat> have talked about for the last month or so. People who just stand out as shining examples. But Christmas is something more than just to endure or to enjoy, uh, but that it can be experienced and that it can have a backbone and it can provide a hope uh, in the most difficult areas of life. Even for a man who's thrown into a Nazi prison, God, let Christmas be that real for us as well. And I pray that as we um, shift now to a time of worship and communion, we would do so um, in celebration of that. We ask these things in your name. Amen.